you. Good evening, everyone. And um, I also want to do something in the spirit of entrepreneurship and congratulate Krista on her sale of Kerpoof to Disney. So a round of applause for Krista on that successful exit. We always love that in the entrepreneurial community, those nice successful exits. So well done. And now we know Krista is at Disney as general manager of the Disney Interactive Group. And you will be just as envious as I am that when you get mail from Krista now, she has these little Mickey Mouses on her signature line of all of her email messages. So um, that's something that's pretty cool. Uh, Krista, you uh, really have um, an impressive technical background. Why don't you just spend a, just a minute and tell us what that is and um, how it impacted you to become an entrepreneur. Okay, so can I just say, when uh, Bell Labs fellow tells you have an impressive technical background, that's nice, so thank you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, a lot of people don't know, I'm an electrical engineer, uh, first and foremost, and uh, started in a, such a different space. I actually worked at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory for 11 years where I created custom electronics for high-energy physics experiments, and tremendous experience. I actually got to work around the world. I worked in biomedical applications. I worked uh, at CERN. I actually worked on LHC, for those of you who are familiar with the, the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, that was the last project. Uh, I, by year 11, realized I had managed informally a team of 15 people for uh, an experiment at uh, LHC at Stanford. And I realized that I really liked leading people. And so I went to the management of the lab and said, you know, I'd like to formally like go into management. I think I'm good at it, and I'd like to do it. And they said, "Oh, like maybe in 30 years. You know, <laughs> you're not anywhere near experienced enough." But about 30 at this time, and of course, there's people in Silicon Valley. I'm in Berkeley. People in Silicon Valley who are starting companies and CEOs at 20. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I should try a corporation. So I went to Xilinx, which is a high tech company, uh, and and. It's probably too much information, but I, I, it's funny to think back on. I actually was so petrified. I, I, it was the only place that offered me a position as a manager, and I was managing two people. I remember saying to my boss, well, if I really screw it up, you know, can I just go back to being an individual contributor? And he said, yes, that's fine. And I thought, well, at least the worst would happen. I would, like, ruin these two people. So, anyways, it went very well. Um, and, and Those two people are not there, are they? <laughs> <laughs> um, and grew that team to a large team and then was asked to grow a second team in Boulder. Um, and they moved me out here. And that was high-speed networking equipment, so 10 and 40 gigabit um, applications for the networks uh, uh, companies, Cisco and Nortel. And what was interesting about that experience, which does feed to eventually being an entrepreneur, is that um, I realized how competitive I was. And I didn't know that in research. But when I came to Xilinx, um, Xilinx, for those of you who don't know, has sort of one competitor. It's kind of like Hertz and Avis. And um, if they're Hertz, then Avis is Altera. And I just very quickly wanted Altera to be dead. You know, I just, like, stomp on them, them to go away. Like, it was just ridiculous. This, like, wrathful person came out of me, which was very interesting. And I would go to salespeople when we lost design wins where my product was involved, and I would say, well, what do you mean we lost? My product was involved. And he said, well, Krista, you know, your product is a small piece. There's the price of the silicon. There's all these other things. No. When my product's involved, we should win every design win. And so um, I would go and meet at these boardrooms, and they'd say, what could have I done that we would have won? Well, we um, you know, learned from that. Anyways, I could talk about that all day. So that was interesting. Um, and from there, left to start Kerpoof. Well, and, and that, I think your technical background has a lot to do with your success as an entrepreneur in, in tech. I'm really curious what inspired you to start Kerpoof. 
you you could have gone on in corporate careers, you know, for forever, um, you know, managing people and, and having exciting technical projects. Why did you start Kapoof? So, so specifically Kapoof or just being an entrepreneur and take leaving corp, corporate America? Kapoof. Kapoof. Oh, you're living at Kapoof. Okay. Um, so... Uh, well, first of all, I'll say that when we left to start a company, we had no idea what we were going to do. Um, we, so we didn't leave thinking we were doing Kerpoof. We actually left not knowing what we were going to do. We had decided that we had a lot of uh, design skills that we would form a consulting company to bootstrap and that we would be able to make enough money consulting to start an internet startup. And we knew we wanted to do something in the web consumer space. Everything we talked about or dreamed about was all web consumer, that we had zero experience or knowledge in. And so uh, when we talked, everything that we were drawn to were ideas around design. And initially, all our ideas were around design for adults, design tools and sites. And then at some point, someone said, well, we should do something for kids. They like create all the time. And so we thought, oh, and none of us imagine at this time. So we don't know web, we don't consumer, none of us have kids. So we, we decided to go and look and see what was there. And in fact, it was really disheartening because there was nothing there. So you have these powerful machines and powerful tools that are being created for adults. And for kids, it was pretty much video, pretty much an extension of the TV, really bad space bar games. And the more I learned, the interesting thing is all of that wonderful educational software that, that probably many of you know, Carmen Sandiego, KidPix, um, with the death of desktop software, just died away. Nothing really replaced it. And so uh, we got very excited about this. And, and, and just the more we thought about it, the more excited we, we got about it. Well, and how many of you have been to the Kapoof site? Uh, it's just a wonderfully designed site. Um, you know, I, I go play there even though I'm not a kid. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just gorgeous. Now, um, Tell us a little bit of how that market then evolved. You know, you left uh, not knowing you were really going to start this kind of a company. You did some research. You got excited about the spaces. Um, you know, how, how did you see that market then develop after you made that decision? And how did you build that brand up of, of kids and their relationship to computing and having fun and designing? So, I mean, um, so how to, she asked a couple questions there. Um, I mean, Two of which I want to, that are important to answer. I mean, one, what we did to build brand, I think, is a really important thing because I think we did many things badly, but that we actually did reasonably well. Um, and then, so in terms of how that market evolved, I mean, one of the things that was interesting when we started is, and even is still true today, there's really not, there's, there's very few people doing stuff for creativity for kids. So there's lots of kids. I mean, so we certainly had competitors. Um, in fact, I, viewed Disney.com as a competitor, and when they initially approached us and wanted to see our roadmap, I refused to show them. I told them I viewed them as a competitor. Um, and, you know, I would show them my roadmap and they showed me theirs. So, uh, <laughs> it seems actually sort of funny in hindsight. Um, so, you know, in, directly in what we were trying to do, there wasn't really a, a litmus of, hey, they're doing that really well. But what we did do um, was we did look at websites that were doing very well. And uh, I mean, the longer story is we launched Kerpoof in 2007, January 2007, and they didn't come. You know, we didn't have, we thought the millions would come, and, and they didn't. And I think there was really a question of, well, 
wow, maybe we should, everyone was right, we should just go do a Xilinx FPGA product. Um, and there was um, sort of a little crisis. Um, and it's interesting, it was at that point that we really started doing market research. And you have to understand that prior to launching, we thought we did market research. But the problem as an entrepreneur is when you really love your idea, you find the data to back it up. Like, you just can. You can do that really easily. But when you're really looking at potentially failing or having to your site not working, then you really look in a different way. And we learned some very interesting things, and we put together a strategy um, that did make our site viral, and we were able to turn it around. And I do think sometimes with entrepreneurs, um, the tendency is to throw everything away and start again, and sometimes a small correction. There is value there in a small correction. So coming to brand, uh, because I think a disadvantage uh, that we had and you know, what Entrepreneur doesn't is there's, of course, no marketing budget. And so I, I think the things that work for us, and I, I did think about this because I wanted to share, because I thought, well, what could I share with potential entrepreneurs that would be valuable? And I, I think this is one of those things. So one thing we did that was very interesting is we went to conferences. So it, it, it turned out that uh, I could, in a pretty short order at a conference, meet influencers. Uh, a great example of this is Dester Magic. It's, a, it's limited to 60 people. It's a small group of people. And this just being very aware of everything was happening, I attended. Um, the head of Parents' Choice uh, was there. The head of uh, Yahoo Kids was there. The head of New York Times, the um, technical writer for New York Times was there. So, and, I, and, and they let entrepreneurs that are there demo new products or anyone. I mean, Fisher-Price demoed something and Lego demoed something. So it's a very collective group of people. But I immediately got to develop colleagues because... One of the greatest, sort of one of the worst things about what we did switching markets, and it's fine, follow your passion, do it, and that's great, but you don't, right, if you looked at the, the certain high-tech arena, I had tons of contacts that I could call on, and if you, uh, in the in the kid space, I had none. So sort of having to really quickly create meaningful contacts there, and so that was, I think, really successful. We also read a lot. Um, we're all readers, and so, for instance, there was a... Um, Sesame Workshops Cootie Center published a very uh, important paper called Ds for Digital by Carly Schuler, um, a 60-page document that there's on page 34 mentions Kerpoof. And so I just emailed to the director and said, we were so delighted to be mentioned in this seminal paper. And he, he said, oh, little did you know, everyone at Sesame Workshop loves Kerpoof and plays on it all the time. And I ended up meeting him. He was coming out to Colorado um, I drove down to Colorado Springs. I met with him. They had an inaugural event for their digital media center. They invited me to be a speaker on that. In fact, that, that talk is on YouTube. So again, like just those kind of connections are, are really important, but we wouldn't have had that connect, connection if we hadn't been sort of aware of what people were saying and writing. Um, so that was good. I think partnerships were critical. So a really good example of that is I met Lucy. Um, so Lucy and I actually do know each other prior to this event, and I met her... Um, and she was, we were talking about what we were doing, and she's saying, oh, we're, you know, so she runs National Center for Women IT. They want to get kids involved, um, and girls in particular interested in technology, and they were going to work with this, these big corporations to create a tool to let kids learn a little programming, and I said, oh, we well, shouldn't do that with Microsoft. You should do that with us. We would do a much better job, and um, that, led, <laughs> that led to the movie maker. Um, Lucy actually was an advisor to us for an NSF grant where we got $100,000. We launched the movie maker. Um, we're still, that partnership's ongoing. It's also with another corporation, uh, another nonprofit called BizWorld. Um, and so that partnership, right, so they have um, contacts that we don't have. So I, th I think that that was good. And then the last thing, well, actually the last two things, it is long-winded, but I, I do think these worked out for us, especially sort of not having any money and being scrappy, um, is 
uh, one of the things I did is I got a marketing sales advisor and uh, she pretty much everything I did was wrong so uh, the first thing I did was I told her that my plan for getting press and I had showed her my list of the top 20 largest circulation and I had been calling them and getting you know trying to get their attention and she said that's that's all wrong you need to build your local media support it was the best advice I ever got and so I completely turned my attention to local media um, and you learn a lot doing that and in fact that was much a much better strategy for us and in fact at one point we had almost 20x the traffic in Colorado that we did compared to the rest of the United States which really goes to show you that print media is not dead and even a crappy little article mentioned about your company has this really big positive um, effect. And then the other thing that, there's not a lot of these, but they're good if you can get them. We got, I think, lucky. Um, again, reading TechCrunch, being very aware of what was going on um, in the community, both for kids, but also technology in general. And TechCrunch launched um, TechCrunch 50. And it was supposed to be like, um, the whole idea was instead of demo where you pay, the entrepreneur pays to demo their product, they were going to make it free to entrepreneurs. And so uh, that, that's a, a whole different story, but we did put our name in the hat and, and did get that. And the reason that we wanted to get it, it turned out to have lots of benefits, but the best reason is I knew that international press was going to be there, and that's where we got international traffic. So we started getting international traffic after presenting there, and even though like, there wasn't impressive press, you know, it was like bloggers and stuff, but it doesn't take much. And so then for a while, Moscow and uh, I think still Moscow and Australia are two of our highest um, places of traffic, and that really comes from TechCrunch. So very long-winded, but there you no, go. No, it's very interesting. <laughs> and and um, you're, you're speaking about money, which I'm sure many people are, are eager to know about how you decide to fund an entrepreneurial venture. Um, there are all kinds of options, and I know you took a particular path. So why don't you say a bit about how you funded this and why you chose to do it that way? So I, th I think the first thing that I would say about that is I think I know entrepreneurs, including myself, I think there's this feeling that you're going to have an idea, you're going to be passionate about it, write a business plan about it, and that there's a line of people waiting to write you a check, and you're sort of sift through them and pick the ones you like or don't like. And the reality is, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, particularly if you're going into a space that you have no expertise, and I wasn't a VP from Hasbro, uh, good luck. Right? So most people I met with, and we, we, because we had the consulting, I don't feel like our hearts were ever in raising money. I mean, I, I, I'd like to believe if I really made that my mission, I would have succeeded. Uh, but we did, we did meet with people. I did meet with VCs and angels. Uh, and by and large, they said, well, we think you're crazy. When you come back to your senses and do something with FPGAs, let us know and we'll fund that. So again, so that should keep that in mind. Um, I think the other thing... I had an advisor, um, let me back and say that I, a seminal thing for me to become an entrepreneur was a ski trip I took. Um, and I, I, I think this is so, I think this is so important. Uh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but you know, was definitely too afraid. Uh, didn't think it was something I could do. And I went on a ski trip and some mutual friends had invited two uh, people who happened to be CEO, co -found, CEO founders of their own company. So one was uh, Jerry Fidler of Wind Rivers, which of course was grown to a billion dollar company. And uh, they both were like, oh, my God, you'd be an amazing CEO. You have to do it. You should do it. You know, you're, you're meant to be one. And we spent a week together skiing together. So they sort of got to know me. So this wasn't sort of just a shallow um, thing. It felt real. And it felt really encouraging. Like, it was the first time I really thought about it. Um, and so uh, it just still took me two years to find uh, four people to do it with me. But anyways, he as an advisor, when River started with consulting, 
and and there um, they consulted for nine years before um, they they sort of honed in real time operating systems as a product, and I thought that was such a great model. And so when I met the three people, um, the three people that we decided to do this company with, I said, you know, here's the thing. I think we're really talented. We've had a lot of success. I think. We're going to bumble along. I think we'll get it wrong the first time. We'll get it wrong the second time. But I feel like if we stick together and we have a bootstrap model that's sustainable, eventually we'll hit it out of the park. I think that could be 15 years. Like, are you signing it for the 15-year plan? Because if you're not, that's what I think we're doing. And I think everyone sort of philosophically felt like, let's bumble along and make mistakes and just keep trying to do it. And I don't think that's right for everyone, but I think that was really right for us. So so just to, just to take off on that answer for just a minute. You said the VC said when you come back to your senses. <laughs> you know, what did they, what, what kinds of feedback did they give you? Because ultimately it, it wasn't exactly right, right? So, right. and you didn't give up. So what, what specific things did they say to you about you weren't, you didn't have the, the experience in the space or? Yeah, I mean, entirely that. And I mean, it makes sense. If I was not invest in someone, I would not have invested in us. Um, I, you know, just, just because you're going to, if you meet an entrepreneur, you want to know that they have contacts. I think that Rolodex, I mean, they talk about it, but it's true. It's so important. And I do think I was able to create it. But I mean, I wouldn't lie to you. It was certainly a challenge, right? A bigger challenge than if I had those contacts all of which I had in our consulting business. Okay, so our consulting business was an FPJ-based consulting business. And when I met with the VCs um, and they asked us about our background, uh, and we are all four very well known in that market. We've published multiple papers. We've been um, represented in, with IEEE. In fact, I did an IEEE talk in this very room. So they felt like that was our expertise in our context. Would, our, our consulting company in 2007 made $700,000. And my advisor at some point said so. And we, were, and we ignored that company and we were turning away work. And my, my advisor said, so you have a company that's profitable that you're ignoring and you, and, and you have a company, Kerpoof, that's making no money that you're struggling with. Like, why don't you grow the consulting company? And for us, you know, there was, that wasn't our passion. And I think, you know, sometimes being an entrepreneur is being crazy. I mean, I don't know. When you, if, you would never do it, right? You would never quit a good corporate job and that, that it was secure and paid well. And I mean, Xilinx is a great place. I mean, I worked with amazing people. Uh, you would never do that if you weren't a little insane. Like, I think there has to be a little bit of that. And so when a, when a VC says to you, you're crazy, you say, yeah, I'm crazy. Crazy. You're going to regret it. You're going to wish you invested in me. Right? And this sort of part of the bravado and the chutzpah. And, you, and later think, what was I thinking? Like, I so should have failed. But... I think that is a piece of what makes an entrepreneur. You've mentioned your team a few times, and people are probably curious to know, how did you assemble your team? How did you motivate them and keep them going with this kind of a model? Did you pay them salaries, or you know, were they in it in the same way that, that you were in it, or how did that work? It's an important question, and, and by the way, I really feel like I... It's so weird because I wasn't that long ago in the audience because I used to come to things like this to like, I remember listening to different entrepreneurs and thinking, oh, give me a gem, give me a gem that will make me successful. So um, so, so I think honesty is really important and, and sharing uh, these paths is, is really important. So let's see, money. Uh, we started with $50,000 of our own money. We had an agreement to... Um, not take salary the first year and put all the consulting money we got back into the business. We would have not taken salary longer, but that was as long as uh, that some of us could go without taking salary. So we just gated it by need and when we had burned through savings. Um, 
we we felt very strongly to answer your question about employees that um, while employees that got and we did give equity to employees um, to full time staff that they got while they got equity we still gave them close to market salaries, um, slightly below, but not grossly below. Um, we also had benefits that in many ways were better than Xilinx. Um, we had health care. I got a, a cheap health care plan, as cheap as they ever are. And what I did was I signed up for the highest deductible, but I just covered the deductible for anyone who needed to cover the deductible and never had to. Um, no one had to. Someone had a $100 hurt their wrist, had $100 in the thing for the ER. That was the most I ever had to pay for a deductible. Um, but it was a good option for us. We had 401k after the first year. We had, um, I mean, people from Xilinx would come visit us or go to lunch with us. They'd be amazed. Three monitors, good chairs, good light, good place. Very contrary to what I think a lot of people do, but we really felt like we, we're, we live here. This is what we do. It can't be uncomfortable. People need to have the equipment they need. They need to feel like they're covered from the health insurance. But So for us, it was really important when we brought staff on that they wouldn't get equ not only equity, but they would be um, really in a, a cared um, environment. They, they'd feel good about being there. So, because uh, at the end of the day, even when you give equity, the reality is you're not going to give equity to employees in the same sense that you give that the founders have or VC has. You just don't. Typically, there's exceptions, but typically employees get considerably less. And so their risk should be, um, I think, um, equally. Um, you know, commensurate with that, um, because their likelihood is that you're going to fail, and so you have to be careful how much you ask, if you, depending on how much equity you you give. Um, and and I would say even there we were generous. I mean, people would say, "Wow, you know, that's usually what you give to CEOs and VPs." You know, whatever you have to do, what feels right to you. And and we brought talent in. In terms of motivating people, you know, it's interesting. Mostly, what we hired at first were engineers. Um, I guess it's not true. But the engineers we hired at first were people that had worked for me at Xilinx that followed me. I still have people at Xilinx who want to come and follow me. Um, and, and, and Jonathan and – so there were four founders, and Jonathan and Brent worked together at Xilinx, and me and Tom worked together. And while we ate lunch together a lot and fantasized about doing a startup, we actually didn't as a foursome work together. Um, we worked as, as two teams. And so for both those two teams, we have hired people, more than one person from those teams – which means that the management of Xilinx does not love us, but um, but we've never recruited. They've always come to us, um, and, uh, and and so I think the reason for that is a startup at Xilinx or wherever. I think if you, with employees, give doing something that matters and people believe that it matters, giving people genuine responsibility, acknowledge people for great work. I mean, sort of those simple things, um, people will move mountains, and, and they will come, right? I mean, people who come say, we were, I was happiest when I was working in your team, and I just wasn't part of that again. And in fact, I had a person who came to me, and his wife was pregnant, and I said, you can't come. You can't. This is too risky. I just, no. And so he waited long enough so his wife could have the baby under health care. Uh, for Xilinx, and uh, then he kept coming back to me, and I finally said, I finally agree, but I was so worried um, that he was taking on too much risk. Well, it sounds like building your team and motivating your team was certainly one thing that you did right. Um, if you were to name one other thing that you did right, you know, for sure, what would it have been? Okay, two things that you did right. <laughs> Three. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It's it's hard. I mean, not 
I, I, for some reason, I'm not having like one thing really jump out to me. It's more uh, so many little things that putting one a lot of weight on one of them. But um, you know, I think. Hmm. I, I don't know. This just can't be everyone's path because everyone can't start a consulting company. But I think. I think if you can, even if you take money, build into your plan uh, some sort of bootstrap. I think that there's a huge freedom with that. Um, and, and it was messy and painful and awful. Like all we wanted to work on Kerpoof and we'd have to go do our consulting work, which was not where our heart was. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not like a bed of roses, right? This is it's running, I ran two companies, and uh, which was the easy part. It was actually the people who had to write uh, code for Kerpoof and then had design embedded systems for military. I mean, it's just crazy, right? Two, two different places. So, but I do think that by bootstrapping, even if it's um, kind of a not great. So I think one of the things we did is, is, is that model, which, you know, I think if the right investor had come along, and in fact, uh, truth be told, uh, one thing is if, if you do stick it out and, and eventually get enough success, they will come to you. Eventually, after year two, we did have VCs come to us. And when we sold to Disney, we were uh, in the process of closing an A round. Uh, and, and that was someone who had come to us, not, not the other way around. And so we were in a position to be picky. So uh, the other thing, I think we did well. But again, like bootstrapping, I think it's a hard thing to say for any entrepreneur to do. But we genuinely, when we sold, were happy not to sell. Um, in fact, when Disney came, we said, couldn't you come back in a year? Like, we really love you, and we'd love to be bought by you. Like, you're like our dream person but not now, like it's a bit early. We wanna build a lot more value and couldn't we just talk in a year? And I think that sense of that, in hindsight, kind of craziness, like the finances are about to drop the whole economy, but that genuine belief and passion in what we were doing, and I, I don't know, I mean, if that's something we did or not. Um, I, think, I think people make the mistake of working in a basement with crappy equipment. And I think if you're an internet high-tech startup, um, th that's not a place to save money. And I am the most cheap person, like the one thing everyone hated about me. Um, oh, the other good thing I did, I was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was your own money. <laughs> yeah, but, but well, I'm cheap anyways, yeah. but, um, but that served me really well. It was the first time that being cheap really served me well. So I remember someone saying, couldn't we buy some pens? I brought in this old pot of grubby pens and pencils, and I said, there's the pot. You know, that's your pens, that's your pencils, that's your oh, buying pens. I think there's things to be cheap, and then it's actually a stupid thing. And they just give me a hard time. That was a dumb thing to spend. Sometimes I'm cheap across the board. But, but there's, there's, there's things to, to be, um, you know, especially services. Um, my rent, I, I actually, you know, got convinced the person to, to start our rent lower and then um, periodically increase it over time. So it would be disproportionately higher in year three. Uh, than year one uh, when we'd had less money and, and I we had um, a couple of service providers that I negotiated to, to have to be to cost lower so I was just willing to ask anyone for less I mean anyone who did anything for us I would say well could we, you know we're just little entrepreneurs we have no money you can do it for less and we got I mean there's such a one of the beautiful things about being in this country and being an entrepreneur is there's such a warm um, welcoming as an entrepreneur you say an entrepreneur and they go oh you're an entrepreneur oh it's just it's wonderful. And so because of that, like people really are, they're really generous. Uh, I had an advisor and we had our first kind of HR thing and I realized we had no manual, we had no, uh, something like that. And I called my advisor and he said, oh, we, we, when my last company that we raised $120 million, we paid a ridiculous sum to create an HR policy manual, I'll just send it over. 
and and uh, I mean that's very generous, right? I mean I just think that's incredibly generous to to do that. And I have since sent it to someone else. Those poor pet policy manuals sort of going everywhere. And I edited. I mean there were things that weren't um, appropriate to us. I'm not saying that you just take that, but you know there it is. Uh, anyways, I've said. Well, you're talking about the generosity of spirit that you met, you know, as as you were starting Kerpoof. Um, maybe expand a little bit more about what you see with the Boulder community, the Boulder entrepreneurship community. What kind of support in general um, did you find there? Because many people here who are maybe thinking about starting a company or have already, we live and operate here in Boulder. You know, absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly for qualified as I know nothing else, right? It's the only community I know. But I'm amazed, and it's funny because when I was at Xilinx, you know, I think if you're not in the entrepreneur community, you're just, you just don't see it. And there's like this whole little ecosystem that goes on in Boulder, and there's meetups, and there's, I mean, there's just so many things to plug in and meet people, and um, the MIT Entrepreneur Series, and this series, and that you can absolutely, before or after, meet someone and connect to someone. I met so many people that way, and then the generosity of time, I... I just can't imagine. I, I mean, I remember meeting someone, and uh, they said, oh, I know the person who started one of the Exabyte founders. I'll introduce you. I bet he would talk to you. He ended up being an amazing advisor to me, and he didn't know me from a hole in the wall. Um, and then also, let me tell you the other interesting thing, because the first time I met Brad Feld, I think he was pretty underwhelmed. And he, um, he said, well, this is, you know, cool, but it's not my space. I don't really care about kids. I don't really want to do this. And I said, well, it's fine. It's, you know, can you just introduce us to these three people? And he said, yeah. And actually, to his credit, did it. A lot of people say they'll do stuff and they don't do it. So he did it. But we dropped out of touch with him. But we kept building value and we were starting to be heard about a little bit. And then we got into TechCrunch and we were sort of panicking because we were going to present in front of, I was presenting in front of 2,000 people and what to present and how to present. And so everyone was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if Brad would help us? And I'm like, well, let's ask. He's like, come on over right now. And we're like, really? So I went over there, and uh, I won't use his colorful language, but he ha- I did my dry run. <laughs> and he hated my presentation. Like, he just ripped it apart. And it was 10 times, 100 times better because of him. So, you know, that was, again, another very – and he ended up actually after that becoming a full a, – a, you know, I don't know if he would call himself advisor, but he was absolutely gave us a lot of advice along the way, particularly in the cell. But so there's someone who, you know, I think gives a lot to the community, maybe not necessarily at the beginning because he can't mentor, you know, everyone that comes to him. But as you have sticking power and you stay around, you also get people like that who are willing to help you um, later down the line. I just wanted to ask a tag along question of that. For students in the audience who think they might want to start something someday, would you recommend that they reach out to people like you and other entrepreneurs in the community now or to wait until they have some sort of idea that they're trying to, to pitch or to sell or to get advice? Okay, so I, this is such an easy question to ask because I really believe if you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to grow thick skin and not be afraid of no. All someone can do is say no. They're too busy. So it just never hurts to ask. I ask people all the time for all kinds of things. That served me well. That's another thing. See, they're coming now. Um, so you know, being being able to do that, and it doesn't matter if you can't do it. Um, MIT did a really interesting study that the the the, the study was. Um, let's see, uh, there is gain up to five founders before you get to diminishing returns. 
So I always thought like two would be the best. Like I always thought we were sort of awkward with four. We can't vote. How do you split the vote? Like it's just such a mess. Um, and I always thought, wouldn't two be tidy? Like be some nice tidy two. Um, but it's not. It's actually five, which I think is so interesting. So you don't have to have all those skills, right? It makes sense. You just have to find someone who has those skills. And let me not undermine that you just find some of the skills. I mean, obviously, here's the thing. Being, I think there's no stress like doing a startup. I mean, none. And I read every book. I'm a reader. And I just think nothing prepared me. I think it's way worse than the stress of a marriage, the stress of a divorce, the stress of any of those stresses. I've never had a divorce, but I have seen people have divorces, and they're horrible. I think it's worse. Worse. It's so stressful. And so who you choose to do a company with needs to be someone that you really trust. Like, I actually think the best people to do a company with are people that you've been like done a class project together if you're a student or in our case, work together at Xilinx. Like I had worked with Tom for seven years. I know him incredibly well. Um, you know, whatever, that relationship was so solid. You could sort of throw anything at us and, and we would be solid. So uh, that's good. So total segue from what you asked, but um, having someone in your founder group being willing to ask anyone, anything, anytime, really helpful. Well, and, and I've heard it said, and I believe it's really true, that no is just the first step to yes. Um, and, you know, that's an old sales, you know, philosophy. So, um. Which I could have used. So I didn't use that. When I got a no, I sort of said goodbye. Like, I, I, I think I could have used a little more, yeah. but, but I could ask anyone. But I was pretty respectful of the no's, whereas we do know, we know a mutual um, Sue Kuntz is an entrepreneur who, who said that to me mm-hmm. um, when I told her that a couple of the people who um, I had pitched to finance us had said no. She said, oh, oh, oh. That's just the beginning. And yeah. so, um, that's right. Yeah. He said, <laughs> said that's American. They just didn't finish their sentence. What they meant to say was, no, not yet. Oh, really? No, they just didn't finish their sentence. <laughs> right. So um, I want to ask one more one, one question about your most significant obstacle or challenge. Um, we interview a lot of entrepreneurs who start IT companies, and um, it's very interesting, along, along with W3W3, who's here, Let's give them a plug, um, and it's very interesting that entrepreneurs' single biggest challenge seems to line up in one of a few places, and so I'm just curious to know what so you're testing is. me. I'm testing you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you're testing me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think mine is very specific. Right? Here's the thing. It used to be to build a brand, to go in the consumer space, took about $50 million. And so most people believe it no longer takes $50 million. But it doesn't take zero. I mean, it is really tough. There's a lot of noise out there, and we all have the right to be distracted. And so to build a new brand uh, is incredibly hard, right? To build it's entirely de- dependent on viral, right? You can do these other things that I've described, but in my mind, that building awareness. So when we would show kids or parents for poof, we were, knew we were onto something. We genuinely felt like we were onto something and on the audience. But then just try to expand from that is, is really hard, right? How do you get people to be aware? And then add to that that most people actually only go to two or three sites. I mean, people think people really surf around, but most people have a habit and they go to a few places. Occasionally, um, four people will say something to them, so then they'll go try it. But it's a huge barrier. You know, most people go to Facebook, they go to Google, like this very specific. And if you go to Google, it's to find out information. I want to find a cheap flight. I want to find this. It's not to find a new website that you're going to go to daily and obsessively, which is what, as a website developer, we want, right? We, we, we want something that's sticky. I mean, for developer kids, we also want something that's good for kids because there's a stewardship there, but that's the point, right? You're building something that's sticky. 
So I don't know if I if I answered that correctly, but I think building brand was a real challenge. No, it is, it is in the web space. Building brand is, is, is very difficult. So now you're, you know, you've started Kerpoof. You're some, you know, some months, years into it. When did you first think Kerpoof was succeeding? Um, and, and what did that look like or feel like? Yeah, no, I mean, our first month to month over 30% growth, I think we just were ready to, uh, I, I felt like that there should be trumpets sounding on the rooftops. In fact, it was really hard because it was so anticlimactic, and I felt like, why? I just meet people. Why aren't you happy? This is so exciting. It's happening. So um, for us, if you're a website, it's really traffic. Um, you know, it's really, the, the, it's just like having any consumer product. The success of it is how many people are consuming it. And we went, we had this, this period of time where we did, we did careful market analysis. We put a plan in place. And before we even put that plan fully into place, we started to see the traffic growth. Um, happening, and that was when uh, it really felt we had something. In fact, I'll tell you what happened is at some point we had clarity. We thought um, because while I had at the very beginning talked to investors, very soon we stopped. We didn't talk to investors. We just decided we'd build value. We had this bootstrap model, but we knew it wasn't ideal because all the consulting time was taking away from the product. So the question was, when would, when did we? really go for it, really, really go for a large A round and, uh, and try and do it. And we decided that once, um, so, so I'll tell you something that a VC told me that was really helpful. Um, it's when VCs want to invest. So essentially, and it varies from market to market, but essentially something like 30 uh, to 70,000 monthly uniques. Usually a company that has 30 to 70,000 monthly uniques, you're probably onto something interesting. May survive, it may not. Once you get to 200,000 monthly uniques, if you look historically, companies that have gotten to 200,000 monthly uniques have not gone away. They're still here. So VCs view that as too late. They should have invested earlier. So there's sort of a period. And so we sort of felt like, um, and uh, Chris Scoggins, who's a local, another, right? Um, I met with Chris Scoggins to pitch him and... At the time, I was asking for a fairly small amount of money. I don't remember what it was. I was like, why would you ask for such a small amount of money? And I said, well, that's when I know how to put to work. I don't, you know, I don't know what I would do with more money than this. And he said, well, I assure you can do with more money than this. Bring your finances with me. I'll go over them with you. He spent two hours with me going over my finances and pointing out all the ways that I had not thought about that we should be spending money, largely on marketing, actually. My place, and I think coming from an engineering background, um, something that I would do differently if I did another company is I would pay, again, in the consumer space, a lot more attention to marketing um, and PR. I think some money could have been spent wisely uh, earlier with PR. Um, but anyways, so we kind of had this sense of when the traffic would be the time that we would dump consulting, which was kind of our safety net, and really give it everything. And, and about that time, when again, so uh, we had just it's ironic right so that starts to happen before we even reached out to anyone VC started contacting us uh, and then it was a nice situation because I would meet and think I don't like you <laughs> I'm not going to work with you um, but we did meet one that we liked a lot with and we were really we were working on terms we were really ready, ready to sign um, the, at the end of the day just that VC really loved what we were doing he had kids and he believed in the vision and wanted to build it and so uh, we thought because it's funny, when you get a VC, at least for us, it was really bringing on another founder. It felt like that. It felt like they needed to love it as much as us. And um, it felt like he did. And, of course, that's when the negotiations started with Disney. Yeah, so Disney arrives on the scene. And we know the ending to that story. So uh, tell us, what, what is it like to, to have been bought by a media giant like Disney? 
Um, again, see, it'd be better if I was a parallel entrepreneur. I don't know anything else, um, but I, I think it's good. Um, I've <laughs> talked to a lot of people. In fact, wow, oh, the negotiations took a long time, probably like four months, five months, which people say isn't so long, but it felt like an eternity. Uh, felt like a really long time, especially since we sort of had this a round in limbo, right? It was sort of annoying. We were saying, look, we're happy to not do this. Can we just like wrap it up and say, let's not do it so we can go do our A round, like, or do it, but you know, can we just, let's get to it. And the, and one thing about Disney, right, is they're just so big, like you're getting, you're not getting the attention that the larger deals are getting, right? So you're, um, so things move slowly, things move really slowly. Um, but we were fairly worried. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people when they found out when my advisors found out that we were selling, and I had five advisors, they started introducing to people who had exited. And I didn't meet with a single person who had a good story. I mean, not one. I mean, they had horrible stories. I mean, horrible, like, shouting in the room and leaving and stomping out. And, you know, so we were just, I mean, such bad stories that we actually decided that um, it, it shaped how we structured the deal, which actually is uh, confidential because we're an LLC. Um, which is really unfortunate, I think. I really wish it wasn't, because I think it's such an important part of the story and learning. But anyways, it, it did shape our story, because, um, you know, you can read the writing on the walls. We thought, you know, likely to go bad, right? So we can't count on that going well. might go well, but might go badly. Um, it sounds like it's going to go well. And in fact, it went really well. I mean, part of what happened to us is we were approached to be bought at the same time by two media companies. And the other media company was very honest. They flew me to Silicon Valley, and they only wanted... Um, uh, so, which is where their VCs were. Um, it was a new venture by a very large media company, and they wanted our technology. They were not interested in what we were doing at all. And so that was just not a good fit um, for us. We were not interested. But then when Disney came, so we had just gone through that experience. And oh, that's the other thing everyone's always telling you, which is really good advice, is that there's all these biz dev people, and we had ours from Disney. That's all they do is waste your time, right? So they just burn a ton of time coming out, and so they were really, you know, said, you know, be very careful with these people. And so I, they wanted me to um, sign a confidentiality agreement. And I said, you know, no, I'm not because I have this A round. I'm not, I'm not. No, forget it. And uh, kept sort of, you know, pushing and pushing. And I just kept sort of pushing them off. Um, and at some point, and partially because the first experience was like, you know, and I was very respectful because honestly, Disney uh, is a great exit for us on a number of levels. But finally, um, the, I mean, the president of the Walt Disney Interactive Group, so Disney's actually multiple companies and the, with presidents that report to Bob Iger. So the head of the Walt Disney Interactive Group, Steve Wadsworth, um, the head of all of Disney Interactive, Paul Yanover, and the head of Disney.com. So this like, you know, army of like Disney execs came. And we were very intrepid. And that's where they asked to see my roadmap and I said no. And um, but the more we talked, um, at some point, Paul Yanover said, you know, you're what we think Disney magic artists should be. And I said, oh, we think that too. We think Disney magic artists sucks. We think we'd be great at that. And then, and then it was this, and they said, we love what you're doing. We don't want to change it at all. We want to get out of your way. And in fact, if you go to Disney.com now, today, um, the thing we've really been working on the last year and that we've launched that um, we're extremely proud of is on Disney.com, it says Games Video Create. And everything, every single thing under Create was created in Boulder, Colorado. And so now you have, and the New York Times wrote a very warm article about it um, in the print paper, uh, which 
if you go, uh, two things that are very interesting, right? So this is a media company that all they do is push content, right? They, they're the masters of creating amazing content, beloved content that we all warm to. They've brought kids into that creative process. So now kids are creating drawings that are published there. Kids are creating comics that they're publishing there. Um, and uh, when you go to the homepage, when you log in, your art actually features um, on the homepage, the last three things you've done. And then uh, if you go to Digital Painter, it's just a white page. It's just a quiet white page. Um, and the article said uh, they thought that Walt would have been proud. So that was uh, really nice. And then you get the Mickey on your signature line of the email. That's so <laughs> cool. I still, want, I still want one of those. Uh, I think we have time for one last question, and then we can open it up to the audience for questions. Um, a little bit of crystal ball time. Um, you can tell Krista really is passionate about kids and, and computing and, and uh, online learning. So tell us how you see that field emerging. Tell us the future. Well, we, can, we can all go start new companies. <laughs> uh, Okay, so the, the most the most noisy, but I think the most nascent market right now that uh, if I was an entrepreneur, I'd be running towards is uh, iPhone apps and and tablet stuff. I think that for kids, an amazing, amazing opportunity um, on so many levels. Um, I think all of Surface technology is interesting. I think iPad Touch is just the beginning. Um, one of the things, so, and by the way, if serious, if you're interested in that, um, the Joan Gantz Cooney Center, and I don't think it's closed yet, but for the best learning app for kids, they're offering $50,000, and I don't think you have to have a demo, like, you have to have a good idea, and I, it's just hard to get the word out about stuff like that, and they have a $10,000 with a partnership with the electric company, it's a huge opportunity. Um, Joan Gantz Cooney Center is the digital media arm of Session Workshop, they're an amazing group of people, and I love what they're doing. So I am interested in learning, and I, and I think to me what's really interesting is that the reality with all of the technology, we've really not moved the needle on the digital divide. The reality is our kids that are struggling are still struggling, and it hasn't really helped them. And I, my hope, um, and I think that the potential now is just part of a, um, a thinking group at Google actually talking about this, and I left very encouraged at smart people that are thinking about this, but is that the iPhone and the iPod Touch um, actually do offer us an opportunity to really move the needle. Um, the number one determining factor of a kid's success is their vocabulary when they're nine, um, more than anything else. And the reality is most of us, by the time we're nine, speak about 400 words as our, our verbal vocabulary. But a child that comes from a rich literary household that has papers and books and parents that engage with them have a much larger reading and comprehension vocabulary. And so there's very interesting opportunities with applications that are coming out to uh, augment what a parent can do um, in terms of, of, of learning and vocabulary um, that would be hard to do otherwise because you're a single parent, you're distracted, you just don't have time. So I think there's a real interesting initiative to put um, you know, a, a mobile phone, uh, not mobile device, not a mobile phone, but a mobile device in every kid's pocket um, and, and really make this sort of a national initiative to help kids. That's very interesting. Thank you so much. And I think we have time for questions. Is that right? Yes? Okay. Teresa. I was wondering about um, your legal counsel. I mean, what can you share about lessons learned about working with attorneys and how... I'm so glad you asked. This is my favorite topic. Do you want to repeat the question? <laughs> okay. So the question was, okay, what can you tell me about legal counsel and, and, um, and, and legal, uh, the legal experience you had? So... Uh, first of all, I, I got really lucky because Bradfield recommended Cooley, and I worked with Michael Platt, and 
an, an associate of his, Bryn Weaver, and they were rock stars. Um, but it was very interesting because what happens, I think, typically when you take VC money is the VCs are very involved um, in the acquisition. So we were unusual because we had never taken money. And so there was me and, and, uh, and Mike uh, uh, Platt. And so uh, Disney, uh, very early on, reached out to Mike Platt to ask him a question. And I was furious. And I said, if you reach out to him again, he can bill you. And they said, well, isn't he your legal counsel? And I said, I'm my legal counsel. He advises me. And so not to say, I mean, and one thing I did with, and the reason Mike said the relationship worked really well is we were always a united front. So they couldn't go to him and say, wow, first-time entrepreneur, you don't know what you're doing. They couldn't go to me and say, oh, you know, the lawyer is just trying to get this. They're just, we were really like this. And I met with him, and I said to him, I remember meeting with him and saying, this is critically important to me that you and I be a united front. He's like, oh, that's so great. A lot of entrepreneurs don't get that. He's probably just being nice to me. But anyways, it was true. It worked really, it worked really well. It was really important because I think there is a number of times where the biz dev person uh, was very aggressive in trying to push me and absolutely said things like, oh, your lawyers are trying to do this or whatever. And I just didn't go there with them at all. Uh, and I think it made us, it made, I mean, I, it's interesting, you know, the sale of a business is sort of its own, could be its own book. I mean, it's really, um, it's sort of its own interesting, uh, you have to like negotiation. I mean, it's certainly at the end of the day, it's a negotiation. I'll say one more thing about that that I think served us really well is, the four founders got together and decided what was important to us. We wrote it down, and we never strayed from it. We said those are our non-negotiables. It wasn't outrageous. I mean, it's not like we, you know, we're smart. We understood kind of what was reasonable, but we also understood what we wouldn't budge on. So we wouldn't leave Boulder. We wanted everyone hired. I mean, just things like that, right? That were critically important to us. Questions? Um, yes, this gentleman right here. Uh, you, you, you. Okay. Yeah. Chris, I know something you've done very well is, is hire engineers. I'm wondering if you could say something more about that. Like, what happened when your network ran out and you had to kind of go outside for the first time? Did you use recruiters? Did you, uh, uh, what specific tactics did you do to build that great team? Um, well, I hate the to. The question was? The question was um, I know Chris does something you've done really well, his words, not mine. Um, is hire great engineers, is there advice you could give once you were through with your network um, at hiring to use recruiters? And, and I'm really sorry, in a way, to admit this because, um, but it, actually, I can still answer it interestingly. So the reality is, I have not run out of my network. Everyone we've hired, we've worked with previously, and we have more people that we'd like to hire, though, I mean, arguably, there are limits. But it's certainly, um, would use recruiters. I mean, one of the things is Disney has a recruiter. I don't actually think it's the best way. Um, one of the things that I have always done, I did this when I was at Xilinx and I do it now, is I have relationships with the university. Um, Bruce Saunders actually um, runs a wonderful program teaching work, the students, the engineers actually work with companies, and we've done that. Uh, so just so if you don't know, it's really good as an entrepreneur, actually, because you get free labor. To graduate, uh, engineers have to work with a company on a project and see so you about 60 companies 100 companies put in for this and I think about 15 are awarded and we've been awarded it three times now uh, but and whether and one of those people we've actually hired full-time so that was a per way we got someone um, a young person that started um, of the three groups we had he was just a superstar and you know so we brought him in and he's been amazing so you know I, I think to me you're always hiring and so cultivating the relationships with the university, 
Cultivating relationships with engineers that you like and their friends, I think the best engineers are always employed. Not, not, not always in this market, actually. I should be very careful because that has changed. Um, I know a lot of good engineers that are not employed right now. Uh, but, but when times are not bad, usually your best employees are taken care of. Um, that has changed now, so I need to be careful what I say. Uh, so, you know, talking about when someone says to you, wow, I have this amazing engineer I work with, following up on it and doing it. I always tell my staff, I actually interview every single person we hire. And, uh, and in fact, so you're like, really? You're going to hire the content, you're going to interview the content moderators. Um, and I spend a really long time with people, and sometimes I bring them back and I do it again. I have a really awful interview. Um, but I think the very most important thing you do as a manager absolutely is hire. If you do nothing else well, you have to do that well. Nothing else matters. And so when people don't spend a lot of time doing that, it always amazes me. Um, our teams meet about it. We talk about it. We think about what we're going to ask. Um, I have the same people ask the same questions, so we build up um, a rapport together. Hey, when you asked that last time, and how did they do that problem last time? So it's hard when you're first starting, but I think that can be useful. I think for an entrepreneur that doesn't have a strong engineering team, I would find good engineers. Um, I would say, Krista, can you come and interview? I'm hiring this critical person. Or, you know, name engineer X, right? Um, that, that you know that is greatly respects to augment your interview. Right, because the other thing I believe in specifically, and I have a lot of strong opinions about hiring um, uh, engineers, is I always make them do problems. And I make every single interview that is a technical person interviewing them ask problems. Um, and, I, and, uh, and I believe my interview is IP, so I don't typically share publicly my interview, um, but I ask problems that make people squirm. My, that they don't really answer. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, so my best engineers Love a good problem. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. I thought about that. I'd be like, really? You want me to solve that? I haven't taken that since I was a freshman. I didn't even take it then. Right? I mean, just, can I have a phone book? I've had someone ask me one time. Can I use Google? No, no, no. And then, or they say something vague, and I say, well, now I want a number. Do a calculation. Back of the envelope calculation. Being able to do a back of the envelope calculation. Can someone still do that? Right? So there's lots of things that I think really are important for hiring. Recruiting is one tool, right? So it's, it's one tool. You get resumes. We just got a resume, actually, from someone from a recruiter that came through. Uh, and two of my staff, we don't even have a position, and two people on my staff called them, and we liked them a lot. And I'm actually thinking of going to my boss to say, we didn't expect her to like this person, but we're kind of dazzled. Like, we, we kind of need a rack now, and I'm sure we won't get it. But, right? So right on, I mean, still, it was worth calling because the resume looked interesting. Did that help? Okay, next question. But there was one in the back a minute ago. Do you want to ask it now? Sure. Um, I'm curious to know at what point in the development did you decide to step out to get support, for instance, from an organization like Common Sense Media, who's going who's to advocate for you and now analyze your pro product and then say, oh, in fact, this is really good for kids? Uh, well, so it's funny you say common sense media because actually at a conference I met the CEO of common sense media and oh I'm so sorry thank you for saying that I'm really bad at that so when did you decide to get outside support like go to someone like a PR firm or common sense media that could advocate for your product right there are people who will review your product and do it let me answer shortly that I don't feel like we ever did that well if I could do one thing differently I would throw some money at PR I have now since become convinced that though it's obscenely expensive, that some good PR money for a consumer play is worth spending at some point. Uh, so it's probably sooner than we did. 
that being said, I was actually at an event where I happened to be the CEO of Common Sense Media, and they uh, offered to write and wrote about Kerpoof. So I got lucky. So I think you can also meet and if you connect with people. I mean, it's a little um, more ad hoc, but I mean it, that also can can help if you don't have the funds to do that right away. You can still get people to be on your side and advocate for you. Okay, next question. Yes, right here. Yes, IT. Will you repeat it? <laughs> Were there things you would have contracted out uh, that you didn't contract out in, I, in hindsight when I said IT? I don't know. I, we were, I, you know, you just don't have any money, so you just do what you have to do. But and at first it was fine, but eventually we had a, you know, when you just, and a group of engineers. It's not a big deal, but we had a big group of artists uh, and moderators, and, and we had a pretty diverse staff, and even the engineers. You know, then the engineers were helping to bug other people's IT problems. I mean, IT is just always uh, something that's there. And and actually, I mean, we get some support from Disney now, but we still don't even have someone, and we probably should. <laughs> so sometimes I'm doing IT, like it's crazy. It's Oh, actually, it's just answer. I know this is this is just a side, but one of the things that I think is interesting um, is I think there's a sense of being CEO. So I was CEO, and there's a reality of being CEO. So let's just say if you happen to be one of the, the entrepreneur people who thinks you'll probably be the CEO or aspire to be, and I and I did aspire. That was the role I wanted. Um, is the most unglamorous job. <laughs> so, uh, and, and not that it doesn't, I mean, you're the face of the company, and so there's lots of fun things that come with that, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's very interesting, uh, right? You, you really do do anything. I mean, uh, you do, you go and get uh, paper towels because you need paper towels. I mean, you just do, you do whatever needs to be done to keep the team successful and moving forward, and that turns out to be this very IT, right, human resources. Like, it just turns out to be this huge um, swath of things, but, um, I mean, this it's not a bad thing, but it's just a surprising thing, I think. There's a question over here. Yes. I'm curious how your role changed in the transition now to working with Disney, and what does your day-to-day task look like? How does that management look like? So the question is, how did your day-to-day role change once Disney bought you? And I mean, many things have remained the same. Um, I still lead, first and foremost, the strategy and vision for what we do. And that hasn't changed. Um, the things that, and I still run, I have a budget uh, that I run separate to my boss's budget. So they carved that out separately. So I actually still have my own budget that I run, which is not, you know, it's a bigger budget, but it's the same as having a budget uh, that I had before. I think the, the, I mean, it's not that interesting, but, you know, one, one of the, the two di- biggest differences is now with Disney, I spend a lot of time talking, uh, in fact, most of my time talking and working with people at Disney. So uh, Disney is a content provider, and we've created applications that can feature that content. Okay, so for instance, a comic book creator or, or a little more recent app, uh, instance. So Disney did a, uh, a TV show called Starstruck. And we don't always do this, but this is a good example of the kind of conversation I'll have. Uh, And they wanted a photo mashup, um, which is a designer activity, uh, to support Starstruck. And so they met with me a couple months ago, and we talked about what that would look like and how we would do that and where we would launch that and how we would promote it. So we never had conversations like that. Um, I think that the the conversations that I did have... uh, so, the, so there's those conversations, which frankly are a lot less stressful than the conversations around 
closing an A round, closing a large sale. Um, right before the A round, we were working on closing a, a deal with Crayola. Um, right, so those those kind of in some ways similar, but but different. In those cases, it was felt more intense, right? Because it's those next deals that are really going to make it. Where now, in some ways, it is. Uh, it's stressful in a different way, but it, I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't less stressful. I mean, I'm a workaholic, so it's never not stressful because it's just what I do, but it's um, it's not the same stress that you have as a startup. Okay, we, uh, Jill and I are debating if we should wrap this up, and so then Brad raises his hand. So Brad, you get the last question. <laughs> here, especially from the ITP program, who are technically oriented. Um, looking back in retrospect to what would have been helpful to pick up while you were in college, even if you knew that it was going to be a while before you became an entrepreneur, is there anything that you would have done differently in terms of your university experience or graduate school experience that would have positioned you to become an entrepreneur? So the question is, uh, looking back, is there anything I would have done differently as an undergraduate knowing I'd eventually be an, an, an entrepreneur. And uh, I, I think, I mean, certainly I would have taken finance. That would have served me well, seriously. Um, it's certainly, it's learnable, uh, but I, I think everyone should be made to take some basic finance. I think it would have been really helpful. And I think having finance, and I don't know if schools are doing this now, but particularly there's a finance program that's really about finance for a small business. Uh, and... I mean, one of the things that you have to do, and it doesn't matter that it's not true, but it's really helpful, is, is you do have to forecast money and revenue, right? What your expenses are, all of that. Right? You, have to, you have to do this in a way that, again, it's learnable. It's all, it's, it's all learnable if you haven't taken the class. But it would be so helpful, I think, in so many ways. Even in Xilinx, when I look back and I think of the budgeting stuff we did, I mean, in many ways, the knowledge I have now from doing my own business of budgeting I would have been so much better then. And by the way, just on a totally separate note, because um, terminology has changed. Um, information technology is used in a couple of different ways. I just want to clarify, because information technology, we have people that um, really specialize in information technology and, and support organizations, support large companies, whatever. But information technology, and, and I'm just realizing this, as Lucy's saying next to me, has taken on a larger meaning. And in fact, especially in the academic community, and I think it's rolling over in the general community, but it's really encompassing everything technology and engineering and careers around that. So the National Center for Women in IT is actually about technology in general. So uh, we do have to be careful with terminology. Well, and I... Um Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I, I also wanted to say, because we didn't get a chance to talk to Krista about this, but throughout this entire time and the time I've known her, she has also been incredibly generous with her time giving back and working with groups like First Robotics and NCWIT. And I mean, entrepreneurs are crazy, like she said. And we didn't even get to talk to her about her, her uh, life and work balance, which we know, you know, she um, was- None. None, okay, we know the answer there, <laughs> none. Um, we prefer to say it's integration, right? Uh, whatever that means. Um, but, but through that time, she has been incredibly generous in giving back to the community. So we really want to thank you for that, Krista, and also for just a wonderful session tonight. Thank you. Thank you.